It's really exciting to get to be back with you all the Sunday before and perhaps the Sunday after Christmas. I'm supposed to be here next week. Um, but I did want to say uh, one, one heads up about what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, sometimes it happens that a preacher submits a title and a passage for a sermon and then spends a week thinking and praying and preparing for it and his uh, inclinations of what would be most helpful or fruitful to talk about change. And so that happened this week. Revelation 21 is printed in, in your insert. We will talk about that, but it won't be the primary focus of what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible or a phone and you'd like to follow along, uh, let me go ahead and give you the, pa- the verses we will be looking at so you can follow along if you'd like. It's, fir- it's the first chapter of both First and Second Peter. A few verses out of First Peter 1 and a few verses out of Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, and here is why I wanted to look at those places. We're still talking about this idea of still waiting for Jesus. Uh, we're still talking about Advent. We're still aware that Christmas is a few days away. That hasn't changed, but the passage has for this reason. In, in thinking about uh, this uh, third, fourth Sunday of Advent, um, it occurred to me that we, every year, we do a great job rightly so, of mastering the details of the what's of the nativity accounts. The names and the dates and the places, the circumstances, the events leading up to it, the consequences of the coming of the Messiah. And we master the who of that account. We look at Mary, we look at Joseph, kids in Sunday school or nursery or wherever, you, you master, you have little cutout figures of Mary and Joseph. No cutout figures of Herod. But these are, the, these are the details we master, the what's, the who's, the where's, why Bethlehem is significant, what it means that God entered the world in obscurity, uh, in a manger. But it occurred to me that the, the question that we, we scoot past without even realizing is there right before our faces is the why of the nativity accounts or the Christmas story. Not so much the why of why did God come to redeem his people, but why are these accounts in your Bible? Why are the nativity accounts, the Christmas stories recorded in two of our Gospels, why are they prophesied in Genesis and Isaiah and the Psalms? Why are they there? And perhaps another question, what is their purpose? What, what does God intend to do in you or for you through these stories that you're going to hear again uh, Christmas Eve night? And so this, is a, these, this passage is a chance to take a little bit of a step back and ask the question, perhaps that's so obvious we never thought to ask it. I've never asked it. Why are, these, why are these stories even recorded? Why are we talking about them now? And are they for more than just nostalgia? More than just remembering what God has done in the past? Peter says, of course, they're more than that. The reason why is we're Advent people. We're not just looking back at people who were waiting. It's not like at Christmas we just pretend like God hasn't come, hasn't redeemed, and we, we try to transport ourselves back to a place where we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and we're hearing these prophecies, for unto you a child will be born, a savior. Um, as this quote at the beginning of the bulletin by Michael Card, I just saw this as we were worshiping, he says, he, he says we're people who live in between Advents. People who live in between the first coming of of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. And that is a really hard place to live. 
It's really nice because we see with clarity God's purposes in Jesus. We're caught up in that. But we, just like those ancient Israelites, just like those first century Jews who were, who were trying to make sense of this man named Jesus right before their eyes, we also live in obscurity and fog. We also feel the need to know much more than we know about why the world is still the way it is. Michael Card says this, All we could ever imagine, could ever, ever hope for, Jesus is. He is the Prince of Peace, whose first coming has already transformed society, but whose second coming will forever establish justice and righteousness, meaning now they are not fully established. All this and infinitely more are alive in this impoverished baby in a barn. That is what Christmas means, to find in a place where you at least expect to find anything you want, everything you could ever want. That is where we do life, in between Jesus' comings. Let's read the passage. I'll read it for you from 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll move on. Peter says this about Scripture, about, for our purposes this morning, the Nativity accounts. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully or diligently, tried to make sense of what the Spirit had revealed to them, inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the, suffer- and the subsequent glories. Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths or intricately written nativity accounts. When we made known to you the power and the coming or the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when, we received, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the vo- voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on that mountain. Here is the important part. Peter, who saw Jesus with his own eyes, who heard the heavens part and the voice say, this is my Son, Peter says the unimaginable. Now we have in the prophetic word more fully confirmed or more certain. And you would do well to pay attention to it. He's saying in the scriptures you have more certainty, more confidence than if you had been there with your own eyes, your own ears. That night Jesus came or that day he was crucified. Or that day he was transfigured, more fully confirmed in the scriptures. And you would do well to pay attention to it, Peter says, because it is as if a lamp is shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter finishes with this. He says, no prophecy of scripture comes from man's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray for the Spirit to open our eyes to hear his word. Emmanuel, God with us, 
We are at a place of joy and celebration this morning that that is true. We are not waiting on you to come and dwell with your people, but Jesus, this morning, you tabernacle in this place. You dwell with us. You have made a home in us through your Spirit. And yet, we continue to wait until the dwelling place of God is with man forever here on this turf. And in the meantime, this week, we face family drama and bodily sickness. We face devastating diagnoses. We face the evening news. We face marriages not where we want them to be. We face fear. And so, Emmanuel, come to be with us in a redeeming, illumining way this morning through your scripture. Teach us how to wait as we still wait for Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So I asked the question earlier. I said, a lot of times we scoot right past that question, why are these accounts in our Bibles? Why do we rehearse them so much? Why so important? Well, the first, there's, there's kind of two ways to get at that answer. The first is a little bit technical, and bear with me. But the first is this. The Bible, we'll call it Revelation, interprets redemption. Okay? The Bible makes sense of what God is doing in the world to make everything new in Jesus. Okay? So the Bible is kind of like the news accounts of what God is doing in history to put everything back together again. And so there's a correspondence between Revelation and redemption. Here's what I mean. Revelation is reacting to what God has done in history. And this is why the Bible really is only dealing with and making sense of and applying a few huge redemptive events like creation. Redemptive events like the delivery out of Egypt. Almost all of the Old Testament is interacting with God delivering his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. God keeping his promise through the centuries. And then there's radio silence for 400 years because God is not actively engaged in a direct way in redeeming. But guess what? When the king comes, when the redeemer comes, the printing presses start firing up and shooting out revelation to interpret for you how it all makes sense, what it all means, why it all matters. This is why the entire New Testament is really dealing with one thing. The king's invasion of darkness and his turning on the lights to dwell with his people forever in this place. So the Bible's really only out of, about a few things. Revelation is interpreting redemption. Peter says that's what the scriptures are there for. A lamp in the midst of darkness making sense of what God has done. Think about the alternative if God did not interpret his own actions. Did you see the tabloid cover of the, one of the New York tabloids three weeks ago after the San Bernardino shootings? It was a clever Photoshop job. They had a picture of the carnage in San Bernardino as the main page on the front of the tabloid. And in the margins were tweets that different public figures had put out in, in response to that, saying, our thoughts and prayers are with you, or praying for the victims, or praying that God will bring healing in the aftermath of this. And in the middle of all of those tweets, in gigantic block letters, said, God isn't fixing this. 
So the editorial board's interpretation of history and of reality is God isn't here, so you better stop praying and you'd better start legislating. Not saying it's an either or, it's a both and, but my point is this. If God doesn't interpret his actions, we're left to our own interpretations. And depending on your temperament and your past and your beliefs, we will misinterpret it any, way, any which way under the sun. If you're a cynic, you'll say he's not here. If you have been wading through depression for years and years, you'll say he doesn't care. This Christmas stuff is great, but it has no impact on this week in my life. You'll interpret it away. You'll misinterpret it. God acting decisively right before our eyes, and we're blind to it. Like that tabloid editorial board was blind to it. God is not here. He is not fixing this. And so God in his mercy says, hey, come here. This is what this means. This is what I was doing here. This is why it matters to you today. This is what we're going to do with everything in the future. Peter says, you would do well to tune in, to lean in as your father leans down to you and says, this is what it all means. This is why the king came and this is why life still hurts. And this is when I'm coming and what I'm going to do. Okay, so let's say that's the technical explanation of why these accounts are in our Bible. Because revelation makes sense of redemption. Lest you and I are left to your own gut opinion. But the second reason is the reason why I wanted to talk about these passages. And it's a pastoral reason. Of why the nativity accounts are in our Bibles. And why we do well to rehearse them and remember them. And it's to encourage your faith. And it's to open your eyes to what God is doing present tense and future tense in this world. We have a tendency at Christmas to get stuck in a backward-looking posture. And Christmas is attached with all of these good, beautiful things. They're awesome. The nostalgia, the sentiment, the familiarity, the tradition, the warm fires the soft music in the background as we gather the kids around and tell them the story or whatever you do in your family. But is it not predominantly backward looking? Let's tell the story of what God did 2,000 years ago when the Christ came. And we talk about those people who were waiting in darkness. Those people who at long last had seen a great light. Those people who were wandering in the darkness to whom this Savior appeared. And we forget that we are Advent people. We are waiting people. We are people who live in darkness. We are people who yearn and pine for God to, as Isaiah Isaiah said, to, to tear open the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and fix this and fix me. Those are things we still say and yearn for. And so we are Advent people waiting on Jesus to come again. Thus the Revelation 21 passage. That's an Advent passage. It's just when Jesus comes back to finish what he started. And so we also are people like the ancient brothers and sisters who see through a glass dimly. We see better than they do. We have more revelation than they did. But we also see through a glass dimly. 
we also struggle to know how God is being faithful to keep his promises in the midst of what you're going through right now. Even if it's numbness or you don't know where you are. We are people who go through fog and wonder, what are you doing? Father, what are you doing? Where are you? How will you bring goodness out of this? And so we share in common with the people from Isaiah who heard those words, the people who received Peter's words, the people who received these gospel accounts, these nativity accounts, scores and scores of years after they happened. We are like them. We are people who live in oppression, people who live in persecution, people who live in weakness. That is the only context these prophecies and these stories ever came into. Right? It's the early church. Life wasn't going so well for them if you're interpreting it just the data on the page. You have to listen to God interpret life for these people for it to be anything hopeful. So we live in obscurity. We live in an interpretive war. This guy says this is happening. This newspaper says that's happening. Our heart or our our consciences or our emotions say this is happening. And God says, no, that is happening. As Peter says, post-life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, after all of that had happened, Peter looks at the world his people live in, and he says, Scripture has come to you who live as if in darkness. He hasn't forgotten the resurrection of Jesus. He hasn't forgotten that the light has come into the world. Peter hasn't started doubting his faith that maybe the darkness overcame the light. But Peter is looking out at what's happening in the church, what's happening in our lives, present tense, and Peter says, we are in a dark place still. But there is a light, and you would do well to look at it and to let it illumine your week, your month, your sickness, your poverty, your family tension going forward. This stuff isn't unique to us. It's not like we're in a unique cultural moment where the lights have gone out a lot more than any other time. I think this is par for the course for the church of God, for the people of God. One of the oldest songs, other than the Psalms, I only know of this, uh, this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that is literally an ancient song that we still sing regularly in the life of the church today. Any denomination, any background, they'll sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I don't know of any other songs that have had the staying power through 1,200 years, some scholars say, when that song first showed up. 1,200 years, different generations, different countries, different ethnicities, different levels of persecution and oppression in the church. And Christians at every generation in 1,200 years have said, this song captures what life is like for us. This song resonates with what we feel, with where we are. If you took a time machine back even to the 8th century, it is possible That as you're walking through the streets of those villages, you would hear a Christian humming that tune and be able to join him or her. That's how old this song is. And this is how the ancient church sung it. The medieval church got it. Because they're asking questions of, God, what are you doing? When will you come again? When will you make everything new and right again? When will the second advent come? 
These people knew they were in between Advents. A little bit unlike us. These people knew they were still waiting. They yearned. And so the way that the ancient church would sing this song is they would come together to worship and they would split the room in two. I'm not musical. I don't know if the word is antiphon or antiphony. I'm looking over here. I don't know what it means. But basically an antiphon or an antiphony, what it means is one side of the room would sing one part of the story of the song and the other part of the room would answer to the first part. And so here's how O Come, O Come, Emmanuel goes. This side of the room would sing the, core, would sing the verses, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel free that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. And then they would sing, O come, thou day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. Did you hear the darkness? Did you hear the morning? Did you, hear the, did you catch the confusion, the uncertainty? And when they finished singing those lines, the other half of the room would bellow out, Rejoice, rejoice, O Israel, Emmanuel shall come to thee. And they would sing their next verse, and they would answer, Rejoice, rejoice, O Israel, God with us will set you free. That's how they sung that song. That's how we sing that song. And they held two things together, darkness and hope. They held together the wreck of the world as it is and the promise of what God is going to do and what he has already begun doing through Jesus and his spirit and his church now. And so these are the things that Peter is drawing our attention to when he speaks these words to us and says, pay attention, it would be so helpful for you if you would pay attention, he says, to, to the lamp shining in the darkness of our lives and our world. That's the context. To people who ask, what is God doing? Peter says, look at the light, look at the light, look at the light. This is what he's doing. This is what he will do. It's not a Christmas that's stuck looking back. It is a new way we do Advent this week, a new way you do Christmas Eve as you look forward with fresh memories of what ISIS is doing and fresh memories of abortion clinic shootings and fresh memories of what's happening in the world around you with fresh memories of your marriage, fresh memories of your economic outlook for 2016. You carry all of that darkness into Advent with you and you groan, but not cynically, not hopelessly, not dismissively or disengaged, but you bring it all with you. And you say, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel will come and set us free. Peter calls the people that he writes to elect exiles. He calls them sojourners. He calls you nomads, people on the move, people without a home. And so for the ancient Israelites who were hearing from the prophets, 
to the early Christians who were hearing from the apostles, to the medieval church who was hearing through the scriptures and the songs of the church, all the way up until you this morning hearing from me and from Peter. Our anchor, our handle in the midst of darkness, our footing is God's interpretation of rescuing you. And you would do well to listen to it and not your interpretation of who he is, where he is, or what he's doing. We tend to write him out of the story and to think he's not here. And he says, you would do well to listen to me tell you what's going on. He loves his people. He cares for his people. And that is why he recorded in detail how the king came, that D-Day invasion, that storming of the beaches, that penetrating enemy lines, that fundamentally dismantling evil forces and powers and authorities at his own expense for your liberty because he wants you to have hope. He wants you to look ahead, not just back, and know that he is coming again to set everything right. Two stories, and then we'll finish. To make this a little bit more real of why you need this, I have made the unfortunate mistake of not once but now twice being in the midst of a massive renovation of our house when my wife is one week away from giving birth. It's caused problems. Uh, two year, uh, a year and a half ago when Eli was about to be born, we had no floors in any of our house. I had just ripped up all the carpet, all the floors, all the tiles. We bought a fixer-upper big time. And I had ripped everything out, and there's like piles of tile in my living room and, and wadded up carpet everywhere waiting to be pulled out. And, and Anna is, like, we're literally packing the suitcase for, the, for when the water breaks, and she's crying, not because she's about to give birth, but because what her house looks like. And this time, unfortunately, with the timing of me being, working with students, I only have time in Christmas and summer to do work on the house. And uh, we're a week away from the due date and the kitchen is torn apart right now. And uh, there are no cabinets. All of our dishes are on the floor in the living room. And it's been difficult. But aside from me being an insensitive husband and having to learn a lot, <laughs> there's this as well. The way that Anna and I get through these fun moments, when the panic comes, she sees her house in shambles. She sees the impending doom slash celebration of a new baby and she looks around her and she feels unsafe and she feels like life is spiraling out of control her world is in chaos and what i have to do to put her at ease in that moment is i have to say anna this is what this kitchen's going to look like in a week i moved up my deadline <laughs> This is what the cabinets are going to look like. This is what I'm going to do today. Tomorrow I'm going to put up the cabinets. The next day I'm going to do sheetrock, and then I'm going to do the ceilings. And by seven days from now, this is going to be done, and you're going to have that kitchen you always wanted. And it's going to be finished, and it's going to be awesome. What I had to do in that moment was call her attention out of the present and to the future so that she could bear the present, persevere in the present, be sustained in the midst of the chaos, the shambles, the brokenness, the dismantling that has to happen as a part of res restoration. Part of redemption means tearing apart, which means inconvenience, which means God's work in your life, your family, your marriage, also implies a tearing apart. 
a breaking down. And there are those moments where you take a look at your life and it is all in shambles and big stuff is around the corner for you and it scares you. And you ask in that moment, God, what are you doing? Where are you? How do I move forward in the midst of this? And do you know how willing he is for the thousandth time to come near to you and to say, let me show you what I'm doing. It's glorious. This week's the sheetrock. Next week's the cabinet. But this is what I'm doing through Jesus. And I'm here with you, working and working and working as you wait, as you live in the midst of shambles and in the midst of chaos, mourning, exile, longing. If you do not listen to God's interpretation of your life, past, present, and future, all that will ever come out of your heart is anger and frustration and accusing and cynicism and hopelessness. Or maybe you've settled for living in a dump. You've settled for living without God's restoration because you've stopped believing that he's coming to make everything right. Perhaps you believe the cynicism of Republicans and Democrats that this is the way it's always going to be. Just brace yourself. And you've responded in kind. But if you listen to God's interpretation of reality, hope begins to come in. That lamp in the darkness begins to turn up and the room illumines and we see our way around again. The last story is about a man named William Cooper. You know him probably if you've been around the church for much time. William Cooper was best friends with John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace and I Asked the Lord and these other songs that we sing regularly. William Cooper wrote songs like On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand and so many others that you would know if you look him up. And William Cooper was a man like us. He lived an inch from the end of his life. He was depressed. He was suicidal throughout much of his life. Darkness was his world, probably more so than most of us. He was a hymn writer in the 1700s, and um, with his eyes, with, with his eyes only, as he looked around at the shambles of his life, a persistent, dark depression that would not lift. As he looked around at loves lost, opportunities blown, that contributed to his depression. It sent him into death spirals as William Cooper interpreted his life through the, his own interpretation. But he wrote a song about that struggle between putting down his interpretation and picking up God's of the present tense. And this is what he wrote. It's the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He says, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, God treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. With the Christmas account, with the nativity stories that we will rehearse one more time before Christmas Day, God is his own interpreter. Mary was tempted to interpret everything through her own sense, her feeble sense, and it terrified her. There's no way my father will believe that the Holy Spirit got me pregnant. There's no way I get out of this alive. When I show back up in my hometown, I get stoned for adultery. Until the angel appeared and said, do not panic. Joseph interpreted his life, and it didn't turn out well for him. Secretly in his heart, because he's an honorable man, he plans to divorce his wife quietly so as not to shame her. Until the angel appears and says, do not be afraid and reinterprets that situation for him. All of the townspeople are making interpretive calls in that moment. It's harder in the moment, isn't it? It's so easy to see God at work in the nativity story. It's so hard to see him at work in your life right now. Do you know that all of the people that we read about and think it was so easy for them, it was not easy for them. It was hard. Peter says, I saw Jesus himself. I heard voices from heaven. And I have something more assuring, more confident, more certain in the prophetic word recorded in Scripture. And so as we go back into our lives, not just this week, but in 2016, who will interpret where you are? Who will tell you what God is like? Your default emotions, your gut, the places you always go in your mind? Will culture, will the media tell you what God is doing or where he is or where he's not? Or will you let him interpret and tell you where he is and what he's like and how much he is for you? So with the birth of Christ, with the death of Christ, with the coming of Christ, this is not the weakness it appears to be. This is not the death and the darkness that it appears to be. It's not the humility that it is veiled in. It is infinite, raw, divine, eternal power working on your behalf through Christ. Born, lived, crucified, resurrected, and reigning from the throne of the universe today. We are Advent people. Jesus has come, but he has not come back yet. And so we say with John, come quickly. Don't linger. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this week would be a little bit different as we remember that we don't just tell stories of people who waited to see a great light, waited to hear of hope, but we are people who also, looking back to increase our faith and looking forward to what you will do, we need your spirit to turn on the lights. We need you to preach to our hearts and to our minds and to our emotions. We need you to make sense of where we are. We pray that you would do this in Jesus even this week, that we would know that you are here. We would know that those editors are dead wrong. You are fixing all things through Christ. 
we have great hope and joy, even if in the midst of heart difficulty because of that. We ask this in his name. Amen.